You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'll invite you to return to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin reading with verse 26. Luke 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning, Father, for giving us this great story that we come to a story that is very familiar to us all, a story that we've looked at many, many times as the Christmas season has come and has gone. Now, Father, we pray that we would not be blinded by the familiarity of this passage, but that, Father, you would open up our eyes to see the glory of this passage, to see the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to see it afresh this morning. Oh, Father, our worship may be deepened that our adoration may be greater and greatly appreciated, and that, Father, in turn, our surrender would be increased, and that lastly, O oh, Father, and most importantly, you would be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I think this morning what we'll do is really just kind of look at the context a little bit. We're up as I look around the room, I think everyone is very, very familiar with this passage. Let me just say a few words about the context, and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll get down to verses 32 and 33, which is really the verses I want to concentrate on this morning. But you'll notice that Luke starts in verse 26 with a time frame. Notice he says, in the sixth month. Now, we might ask ourselves, and, and uh, okay, what's he talking about, June. Um, of course, that's a joke. You're looking at me like that's silly. He's not talking about June. But what is exactly he talking about with the sixth month? And the answer is, is in the context. If you look back to verse 24, uh, after these days, Zechariah's, that is Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived that for five months she kept herself hidden. Now, what's going on there? Well, last week we saw that Gabriel appears to Zechariah, tells Zechariah, listen, your, your wife is going to be with child. And, of course, what happens? Um, she conceives, Elizabeth conceives uh, John the Baptist. And now, in verse 24, she's five months along, right? Now, when you get to verse 26, and, and Luke writes in the sixth month, of course, it's the sixth month of her pregnancy, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Luke, this is one of the things about Luke as we go. He's very careful. He's a very careful historian. As I, I've already pointed out on a couple of occasions, Luke is very careful to point out the historical context of these things, which gives us all kinds of clues as to the time frame 
that these things are happening. And all this to say is that our faith is grounded in real historical events. And I can't emphasize the importance of that enough, nor I think if I, if I stood here and told you this 25 times every Sunday, that I would be saying it too often. Uh, because it is so very important, and it's especially important for us to reiterate this to our youngsters who will be going off to college and university here one of these days. This is not some fairy tale from some make-believe uh, land. Um, this is rooted in real history. And here we have the angel Gabriel, one of only two angels that are named, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is a mighty angel. He has, notice he is sent from God. He is sent from God. It's an important caveat there. And Gabriel also says, if you look back up to verse 19, you know, he tells Zacharias that he was sent to speak to Zacharias. And, of course, we understand uh, that he was. Uh, but I like, notice the way the Luke is very clear concerning uh, the announcement that Gabriel is about to make, that Gabriel was sent from God. It's hard to read that phrase and not think of Psalms like, uh, Psalm 123, for example, and if you, if you don't mind, I would even ask you to turn to Psalm 123 for a moment, because this is the posture of the holy angels, and it's certainly to be, uh, it's a posture that we should grow into, and in Psalm 123, if you look at verses 2, you know, while you're turning now, just read verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens... So where are the eyes? The eyes are upon he who is enthroned in the heavens. Verse 2, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master and the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, what is the posture there? This is the posture of the holy angels. Where are their eyes? They're upon God. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for their next assignment. What are they doing until they get their next assignment? Gazing upon the beauty. Gazing upon the beauty. Gazing upon the majesty. What a posture to be in. What a posture to be in. Back to Luke chapter 1. This is the posture of Gabriel. Gabriel is sent. He gets his assignment. His eyes are upon the God. He gets his assignment. Off to a city of Galilee he goes to a town named Nazareth. What a wonderful place. There's many resorts in Nazareth. It's a beautiful landscape. It's a place that everybody loves, right? Some of you are smiling. Why? Because you remember Nathaniel's words, right? What does he say concerning Nazareth? His brother Philip says, come on, we got to go see Jesus. You know, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And what, does, what, does, what is the response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, some of us could give some contemporary examples of that, and I'm going to restrain from doing that because it would be really unkind to point to somebody's town and say that it's a place like Nazareth. I'm not going to do that. This recording is going on the Internet, and um, no thank you. I don't want to put anybody's town down, but we can think of places like that. They're probably not places that are on your list of vacation hotspots, okay? And the point of all of this is it is so unlike the world, isn't it? Gabriel is being dispatched. Now, in the, in the previous story, and these two stories are running in, contra, or in contrast to each other, in parallel with each other. We're to study them together. We're to look at them together. And Gabriel, last time, was sent to a priest. And we can, 
we can get that. He's an obscure priest. Had it not been for this story, we probably wouldn't know anything about Zechariah or Elizabeth or their struggle to have a child. We would probably know nothing about that. Uh, in this case, Gabriel is sent from God, from the very throne of God, to this place that is despised by the area in order to bring a message to this young virgin who is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, who is this young virgin? We know her as Mary. But in the time of this announcement, does anybody want to take a guess? How old do you suppose Mary was? She, she is what today we would consider a child. Probably between the ages of 13 and 15. In our culture, she would be a, a minor, right? Of course, this culture is different in our culture. We shouldn't look down upon it because this is this. It would be normal for a thirteen to a fifteen-year-old to be uh, to be engaged in this way. That's what this word betrothal is all about. And a betrothal is kind of like a, an engagement, but it's different in the respect that a betrothal is binding legally. Uh, today's engagements, you know, sometimes they should be solemn, but they can, they can be sometimes flippant. I've seen that many times. Um, really, where the only commitment that's made is a commitment to make, start making payments on a ring. It can be made, it can be broken quite easily. That's not the case here. In the case here, once you're betrothed, once you're engaged in this way, it's legally binding. It can only be uh, dissolved by a decree of divorce. So here is Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. We're told that Joseph is of the house of David. But I want to point out something to you about this verse. I think to the English reader, we usually assume that the prepositional phrase of the house of David is being applied to Joseph. But grammatically speaking, it could also be applied to Mary as well. If you read that. A virgin, verse 27, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. It could be a virgin. It could, Mary, it could be saying that Mary is of the house of David. Now, of course, uh, my position on this is that Mary definitely is of the house of David because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? We sometimes sing that. Um, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1.3 that according to the flesh, he's a descendant of David. Now, is Paul merely, making a, is Paul merely re responding to the fact that Joseph is his adopted father and through adoption he is uh, uh, of the tribe of Jehovah? Well, that, that much would be true. But I think Mary also is of the um, tribe of Judah as well. Mary has uh, Davidic blood flowing in her veins. And here we're, we're told twice in verse 27 that she is a virgin. Now, it is to this Mary, this 13, 14, perhaps 15-year-old, obscure uh, peasant, really, that Gabriel is sent uh, from God to communicate this, this amazing prophecy. In verse 28, Gabriel comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. In verse 29, she's troubled at the saying, and tries to discern what sort of greeting this is. In verse 30, Gabriel comforts her. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, Behold, 
you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Which brings us to verses 32 and 33, which I want to spend some time on, and really the remaining time this morning. Gabriel goes on to say that Jesus will be great. Now, these four words here, he will be great. Let's spend some time on that. And before I, let me just offer you a disclaimer right from the the get-go that this message, this sermon is going to fail. Now, that's a lovely thing to tell you, isn't it? I got this sermon for you. You know, this sermon is going to be miserably, it's going to be a miserable failure. Well, it is going to be a miserable, miserable failure. Because here is the assignment. What is the assignment? How do you expound upon these four words? He will be great. Human oratory cannot even approach the greatness of Jesus. The human language cannot carry the freight of the greatness of Christ Jesus. On December 2nd, 1883, Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon entitled, He Will Be Great, and preached it. And he offered this disclaimer. He said, while my brother was praying for me, now I I take it from this that somebody prayed for Mr. Spurgeon before he preached. What a wonderful thing. While my brother was praying for me, I was wishing that I had the tongues of men and of angels with which to set forth my theme tonight, and yet I shall retract my wish, for the subject is such that if my words were the most common that could be found, yes, if they were ungrammatical and if they were put together in a most uncouth manner, it would little matter, for failure awaits me in my case. He's offering a disclaimer. He goes on to say, the subject far transcends all utterance. Jesus is such a one that no oratory can ever reach the height of his glory, and the simplest words are best suited to the subject, so sublime. He goes on to say that if he could speak in the choral symphonies of the cherubim, yet he would fail to reach the heights of our Lord. He will be great. Now, let me offer another disclaimer. I don't want to give you the impression that Jesus can't be known. I think that's, um, some of us might sit here and think this, okay, we can never reach to the greatness of the, of, of, we can never reach to the heights of the greatness of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus can't be known. That's not true. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the, the glory of Christ, the greatness of Christ, it reaches a place where the human being cannot go. It goes all the way up. It goes way too high. We can be with him in the presence of him for all eternity. We will never make it all the way to the very heights. But that doesn't mean that we're not called upon to meditate upon Christ. In fact, we're called upon to meditate on this all the time. 
The Lord has come in the person of Jesus Christ in order to reveal his glory so that we can see his glory, so that we can bask in his glory, so that we can see his majesty, so that we can see his greatness, so that we can see all this. And we begin, this is what changes our hearts, by the way. This is the very thing that changes us. This is the very thing that turns us around. This is the very thing that has us marching headward, heavenward. Why? As the Lord begins to put into our hearts a taste for his glory, a taste for his greatness, a thirst for his majesty. And how do we foster that? How do we fan that into flame? We do it by meditation. We do it by looking to these verses and doing the best that we can to try to explain these verses. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to fail at it. I'm going to do the best I can, but it's going to be a failure. That's okay. We do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. And as the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see, we're going to care less that it's a failure, aren't we? What do we say in response to these four words? He will be great. Well, first of all, let's contrast them. As I've already said, the the foretelling of the conception of John the Baptist is put in front of the foretelling of the conception of Jesus. Now, we're to see these these two stories side by side. We're to compare them to one another. We're told in verse 32 that Jesus will be great. Now, we were told in verse 19 that, or I'm sorry, verse 15, if you look back to verse 15, we're told that John the Baptist will be great. But notice, notice the qualification. Gabriel says to Zechariah that his son will be great before the Lord. There's a qualification there. What that means is this. John the Baptist will indeed be great, but it's being qualified. His greatness is not an absolute greatness. His greatness is being qualified. Why is John the Baptist going to be so great? Well, for starters, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He's never going to know a day where he is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of us who were converted as adults can really put our fingers on a time when there was no Holy Spirit. And now you can put your finger on a time when there was a Holy Spirit. Big difference. John's never going to know a day where there's no Holy Spirit. In other words, he's going to be great by virtue of the grace that is given to him. He will be great before the Lord, you see. Also, John is being called as a forerunner to Christ. He's got this glorious assignment ahead of him. And that's why he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he may be a forerunner of the one, the promised one who is to come. Promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He is the son, as we've studied in Genesis over and over again, and have asked the question, where is Genesis 3.15? Hey, where is Genesis 3.15 in our text this morning? Pretty easy to see, isn't it? Here's the promised son. But you notice that when we come to these words in verse 32, When Gabriel says to Mary, your son, Jesus, will be great, there is no qualification. Now, why is that? It's because it's absolute. He is not going to be great because he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He's not going to be great because of the particular assignment that he's come to do. He's going to be great because he is great. He's going to be great because he is great by nature. And that's the point I want to make. And I want to make it in two ways. Jesus is great by nature, by nature of his humanity and by nature of his divinity. 
by nature of his humanness, by nature of his godness, if you will, if I might put it into different words. He will be a man. Jesus is going to be a real man. He's going to be like us in every way except for one. He'll be without sin. He's going to have uh, all of the human nature that we have with a reasonable soul, as our catechism says. He'll have a soul. In that soul, he'll build a reason as we reason. He's going to be human in every way, but he is going to be a human. He is going to be a man of absolute moral perfection. Can, can you get your mind around that for a moment? He'll be a man of absolute moral perfection. What does that mean? He's going to come and say a lot of words. Jesus is a preacher. Jesus comes and preaches. I can tell you, preachers say a lot of words. In fact, I'm not applying this to Jesus. I'm going to apply this to myself and to others. We never shut up. These guys never shut up. He could have shut up 15 minutes ago. Why didn't he? I don't know. He's a preacher. Now, the more words you say, the more chances are you're exaggerating something off beyond the limits of mere exaggeration and stepping into really what is deceitful. The more words you say, the more chance there is of telling a lie. The more words you say, the more chance there is where you're stretching a truth or not telling all the truth. By the way, telling the truth is usually a shorter sentence than not telling the truth. Skirting around it takes a lot more words most of the time. In all of the words that Jesus speaks, not one deceitful thing comes out of his lips. And how about all the actions that he does? How about all the activities he does? You know, John tells us in his gospel, if all of the things that Jesus did would have been recorded, I suppose the universe would not contain the books. And in all of that activity, in all of those actions, in all of those exercises, he didn't produce one single sin. And how about the thoughts? All oh, the thoughts. All oh, the thought life. How about the thought life? There's that thought life. That thought life's pretty rugged, isn't it? That thought life is very rugged. But in Jesus' thought life and all of those thoughts, he never approached anything that even came close to an impure thought. And this righteousness, this moral perfection is so great, it is so pure, it is so white that Jesus could stand before the glory of the straight edge of Almighty God between, before God's uh, moral perfection, before the light, the unapproachable light of God's moral perfection. Jesus, as a man, could stand there, and as that light gazed upon him, not a single stain could be seen on him anywhere. That's breathtaking. That is absolutely breathtaking. That is our Lord. Now, here's one for you. This righteousness can not only stand before the Lord's light, but this righteousness is so vast, it is so wide, it is so white, that it is sufficient to clothe every human occupant who is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not simply sufficient to cover one person. That would be amazing. 
If it could cover me, that would be absolutely amazing. Or if it could cover five of us, that would be amazing. But it is sufficient enough to cover an innumerable amount of people. God says to Abraham, look up at the stars, Abraham. And if you can count the stars, so will you also be able to count your offspring. And God can say that because God knows, listen, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send Christ into this world. And his righteousness is going to be so white. It's going to be so pure. It's going to be so wide. It's going to be so vast. He's going to be able to clothe every single one of those offspring, including us. His name will be called Jesus, right? Is that the name he is supposed to be called? Verse 31, you'll conceive in your womb. You shall call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Jehovah saves. Oh, Jehovah saves, yeah. So he'll be a savior. Yes, he'll be a savior. Jesus, by virtue of his name, will be a savior. And he will be great, not only great in his nature, in his human nature, but also great in the work that he has come to do. He will, be, he will come and he will offer a perfect atonement. A perfect atonement. An atonement that is so perfect that it washes away every sin. You know, I was just, um, a, a fellow was just showing me a counterfeit um, $5 bill this morning. It was really neat kind of to see. It was, uh, someone took a $1 bill and they bleached it. He said they didn't use bleach. He doesn't know what they use, but they use something to take all the ink off of this. So this, has anybody ever seen one of these? So that all of the ink's off the dollar bill. And then they, they, they went over top of it with, um, with a $5 bill. They put Lincoln on it and they put the five on it and everything. I'm telling you, it looked really good. But it was a $1 bill. Now, it looks really good, but they were unable to take all of the ink off. They were unable to take all of the vestiges of a $1 bill off of that document. Christ's atonement is going to be so sufficient that it's not going to be like bleaching a $1 bill. It is so perfect that it is able to take away every spot, every sin, every action, every deed, every lie, every careless word. How many careless words does this atonement have to take away from us? How many impure thoughts? What are the number? What number do we put? How many impure thoughts do we have in the average lifetime? It's sufficient to take away every impure thought. It's sufficient to take every sin of commission. It's also sufficient to take every sin of omission. What is a sin of omission? Those are those sins where we should have done something and we didn't do it. We should have done something. We had the ability to do it. We had the means to do it, but we didn't do it. How many of those have we committed? Be of good cheer. If you're in Christ Jesus, that atonement is perfectly able to take away Every single one of those. Sometimes, sometimes you'll, you'll run into people, and I've run into people before, who have been so banged up by their past life of sin that they'll say things like, you know what, Jesus can save you, but I'm too far gone. Is anybody too far gone for this atonement? 
No. 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 Well, how can you say that? What would you say to someone who, who says, you know, this, this salvation that you talk about and this salvation that you preach about, I, I would love to have it, but you don't understand. I am too bad for it. I've just done things. I've just, I've just gone one step too far. Look at chapter 8. I think it was last week. I can't remember recently. I was in chapter 8 with somebody, and I think it was here. I think it was, was it last week? Were we in chapter 8? I can't remember. It's unimportant. You see, preachers, there they go again. Just I didn't even need to add that, but all those words. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom what? Seven demons. Seven demons. Now, I don't know if it's valid to do this. I'm going to study this passage a little closer. But seven's a number of completion. I don't know that we want to do that to this passage. I'm, I think probably we want to take this as there was literally seven demons. Um, but let's suppose there was only one demon. Mary Magdalene had one demon. How evil would the influence be of just one demon. What kind of thoughts would be put into her head by the influence of one demon? A demon is one, a fallen angel who knows the truth, who knows Jesus is the Son of God, who knows that God exists. He knows all of that stuff. He has all of the theology. He's got all, he, he can pass the ex theological exam, but he hates it. He despises it. What kind of thoughts and activities could be produced in a person who is possessed by just one single demon? Mary here is possessed by seven of such. Sounds like she's pretty far gone, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, what's it say? It says she has been healed. She has been healed. Then what is she up to these days? Well, her and Joanna, verse 3, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Suzanne and many others, they're providing for the ministry of Jesus out of their means. What? Uh, they're providing for the church. They're, they're with the church. They're part of the church. They're, they're, they're traveling all up and down Galilee and all over the Holy Land with Jesus. In fact, they're supplying needs. They're, they're really part of the entourage. Part of the entourage. Yeah, well, you know, Mary Magdalene actually was one of the ones who was privileged to see Jesus on the day of his resurrection. What? Yeah. She had seven demons. Pretty far gone. And she was clean. The atonement of Jesus is so sufficient. And the power of Jesus is so much that he takes these demons away. And all of those sins that she has committed while under the influence of those demons, and all the sins that she's committed while under the influence of her own flesh, has been taken away to where under the straight edge of God's moral perfection, what is he going to see? He's going to see the righteousness of Christ Jesus. She's cleansed. Someone will say, well, she had seven demons. I have more. Well, look at verse 20, 26 and following. There Jesus comes to a place called the Gerasenes, 
Luke only records one demoniac in that particular passage. The other gospel writer records that there were two. It's unimportant for our our, um, uh, purposes this morning. But notice when Jesus sees him, Jesus asks in verse 30 what his name is. He says, what is your name? And he's speaking to to these demons, and what do they respond? They say, legion, for many demons had entered this man. Legion. How many demons did this man have? Is it a round number? Is it 6,000? Here's a man who is so engulfed, so possessed by demons that the townspeople would do all that they can. They were trying to shackle him down with shackles. He would break the chains. I mean... The, the man was howling out in, the, out in the wilderness. He was cutting himself. He was doing all of these things. How far gone would this man be? Jesus exercised those seven, those however many demons there are out of this man. And did this man come out of this being white? As he put his faith and his trust in Jesus, the moment he did that, he was covered. He was covered with the perfection of Jesus. And he was made whiter than snow. So it doesn't matter. I mean, what if we've, what if we've told lies? Well, we have told lies. What about thieves? Well, we have stolen. What about murderers? Well, we've all committed spiritual murder in our hearts, haven't we? Jesus is capable of taking them all away. If you look back to Luke chapter 1, verse 32, notice that He will be called Son of the Most High. This speaks to His divine nature. His divine nature. Um, We, every one of us, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are either a son or a daughter of God. But we are sons and daughters of God by virtue of adoption. We're adopted. Jesus, if you look at the text, he is son of the Most High, not by virtue of adoption, but by virtue of his very nature. He is very God of very God, as the uh, creeds tell us. And we're told that he will be given a throne Notice it says, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That is so powerful. Jesus is not a usurper of the throne. He's not like an Absalom, you know, David's son Absalom, who like lusted after David's power, lusted after his throne. So he goes to the city gates, you know, and he steals the heart of the Israelites away from them so that he can steal the thunder from the legitimate king, so that he can rise a coup up against the legitimate king and usurp him. Jesus is none of that. He's no Absalom. Jesus actually is the rightful king, and he is the son of man who comes to the Ancient of Days. That's why I chose that passage. That's That passage, Daniel's vision, where in his vision he sees one like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man approaching the ancient days. What happens as He approaches the ancient of days? What we're seeing is His ascension, His glorious ascension. When He ascends into heaven, what's it look like from heaven's purview? From heaven's purview, here comes one like the Son of Man. He's approaching the ancient of days. And what's happening? He's being coronated. He's being coronated. And He's being coronated with an everlasting crown. He is king. Who is crowning Him? Who is making Him king? The Ancient of Days. 
the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, we don't live in a kingship. We don't live in a kingdom. You know, this all sounds kind of foreign to us, you know, and even as I look out, I see some of your faces like, okay, what does that mean? We've, we've grown up under presidents, you know, and congresses, and, you know, the idea, I mean, we, we reject in this nation any, any notion of a king. We don't want our presidents becoming king-like. Um, that's just not how our government was founded. Um, so the idea of a king is very foreign to us, but what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be a king? Well, first of all, in verse 33, we see that he's not up for election anytime soon. If you look at verse 33, we're told he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And some of you might remember the study. I keep making references to the catechism, the shorter catechism, which we spent. How long did we spend on that? A year? A little better than a year going through all 107 questions and answers. And as we did that, one of the questions was, how does Christ execute the office of a king? So what's it mean? Like, if he's a king, what's it mean? Like, that sounds abstract to us. Okay, he's king. What does that mean? Well, as king, one of the first things he does to each one of us is he subdues us. What's that mean? We're rebels at heart. Naturally, out of the box. You know, when we come out of the box... We're rebels. Yeah, I'm speaking to parents right now, aren't we? Stay out of the cupboard, little junior. All you got to do is tell little junior to stay out of the cupboard. Ah, he, she told me to stay out of the cupboard. That means I'm going to make every attempt I can to get into the cupboard. Why? Because little junior is a rebel. Little junior do not, does not like people telling him what to do. Because he's just like his parents who don't like Anyone telling them what to do? I don't mean to be unkind, but 21st century Americans do not like being told what to do. You know, these sermons, you know, we record them in this little box, and Donald puts them up on the Internet, and it's kind of interesting to see who listens to these. He sometimes will bring, he'll sometimes bring metrics to our session meetings, and there's people like in the Russian Federation listen to this. I think the, what, number two town is Tokyo or some Tokyo, Japan. They're, Tokyo, Japan. And, I, I, you know, it's, it's like I'm careful what I say because of this, you know, I, I, because I don't want to run roughshod anybody who might be listening. It's kind of a challenge. But what do, I mean, I, I know from personal experience what some who've grown up in other, other countries think of us. They, they think of us as cowboys. Have you ever heard that? The Canadians think of us as cowboys. We're cowboys, you know, and cowgirls. And we like... We, we love guns, and we're like, we're, um, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to be running roughshod all kind of, kind of stuff, but we don't like being told what to do. Jesus is king. What is the first thing he has to do? He has to arrest that cowboy and that cowgirl, and he has to get, he has to get a hold of that heart and subdue that heart, because naturally, we are rebels. Go out this afternoon and talk to everybody that you see about Jesus, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see that cowboy and that cowgirl. You'll see whatever, whatever language you want to use. You'll see that rebel. They might pay a little bit of lip service to Jesus a little bit, but they don't want Jesus telling them how to run their lives. Jesus is king. What's the first thing he does? 
He has to subdue our heart. That's what the catechism teaches. He is he executes the office of king by subduing us. How does he subdue us? Is it by the law? No. The law drives us to Jesus. The law shows us our need of a savior because we're lawbreakers. If all we were was rebels, we'd be lawbreaker. That's as R.C. Sproul used to call that cosmic treason. It's treason of the highest order. When you say no to your parents, that's not a small thing. Don't let your kids say no to you. Don't let them do that. That's not a small thing. That is not a small thing when they tell you no. That's a big thing. Don't let them do it. Teach them how important it is for them not to say no to you. That is a big thing. When we say, whoever we say no to, it's a greater sin given the greatness of the person that we say it to. It's, 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 it's to the measure of the majesty of whom we're speaking. So the higher the majesty, the higher and greater the contempt. How big of a sin? If we had only done one sin in our lives, if we had only did one time, here's the one sin, only once, one time, once upon a time, I told Jesus no. Well, who did you say no to? I saw in my vision one like a son of man coming and being crowned by the Ancient of Days. You said no. Do you realize who you said no to? You said no to the king. But our king is so kind, isn't he? And he comes to a bunch of people that continually say no to him. And he wins their hearts. Now, how does he win our hearts? With the law. Well, the law teaches us that we've said no and we're guilty. But the law doesn't save us. The king saves us. And the king saves us. And I'll tell you how he gets a hold of us. He gets a hold of us with his kindness. Paul says in Romans 2.4 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He comes here and by way of the Holy Spirit, he opens our hearts so that we can just see the, a glimpse of his glory. And by a glimpse of his glory, we are forever changed. By a glimpse of his beauty, we are forever changed. By a glimpse of his perfections and his righteousness. And down the list, we say, I'm telling you, I'm going to fail at this because I can't think of all of his perfections. We can't go through all of them. And even if we go through all of them, I only know them so well. Spurgeon in this sermon goes on to say that there were divines who wrote books about the majesty of Jesus. And he went on to say, oh, how they must have had to lament of those books when they finally went to meet him. That's really insightful, you know. I have a couple of those books in my library. One by Thomas Goodwin, Christ Set Forth. Awesome, great book. But how much Mr. Goodwin must have lamented when he finally looked at Jesus and he said, oh my goodness, the highest point, the highest mark, the grandest sentence in my book is miserably short of what I can see. It's miserably short of what I can see. You see, it's one glimpse. I am going to fail at this of saying how great Jesus is. But, but, if we do just get a look of the hem of his garment as he's going by, well, then it might not be such a bad failure, huh? Because if we can just touch the hem of his garment, or if we can just see, you know, Moses wanted to see God's glory and God put him in the cleft of the rock and then he covered his eyes so that he couldn't see him as he passed by, but then he allowed Moses to see his hindquarters. If we could just see the hindquarters this morning. Oh, what a great service that will be. Or, or, 
Or if we could start a new discipline, a new discipline of, of um, meditating upon Christ, just meditating upon His glory, turning to passages like this and saying, Lord, show me Your glory. And then just allow Him prayerfully to begin to show you His glory. Well, that would be a great service too, would it not? Though we can't plumb the heights of it, though we can never make it all the way up, we can't meditate on it. We're called to meditate on it. It's crucial that we meditate on it. It's crucial that we do these meditations. It's crucial that we call on the Holy Spirit to empower us to do these meditations. And what will happen is as we see His glory, as we see His mercy, as we see His love, as we see His beauty, and down the list we go, His hold on our hearts will increase step by step. And as His hold on our hearts increase step by step, our submission to Him, our surrender to Him will become more and more like Gabriel's and more and more like Christ Jesus to where our eyes will be fixed upon Him. Amen? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a miserable failure this sermon is in trying to describe your glory. The same Spurgeon who I've made many references to in this message used to say, keep your sermons to weep over. Father, this is one we will certainly weep over. O oh Lord, your greatness is beyond our imagination. No eye has seen nor ears heard nor the heart of man imagined these great things. But, O oh Father, this sets us on a course, a course and a practice and an exercise of meditating upon you. And though we cannot, although we cannot plumb the depths, we cannot rise to the heights, we can nevertheless begin meditating upon your greatness. And we thank you, Father. You're not a God who, who uh, hides himself. You're a God who has made yourself known. You've given us this big book, 66 books we have, in which you have revealed yourself so thoroughly because you want to be known. You want to be known. And Father, we want to see you. We want to see you this morning, and we want to see you in your grandeur. We want to see you in your majesty. We want to see you in your, in your mercy. We want to see you in your, your, your indescribable beauty. So, oh, Father... Reveal yourself to us in greater and greater measure as we read your word, as we meditate upon these things, as we do so on our knees. We ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.